Hello, and thank you very much for tuning in. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You're listening to JRoot Radio, 97.5 FM. It's our weekly shear in the Parsha. As always, I'm thrilled to be here with you. And with Hashem's help, we should have some beautiful learning of Torah for tonight. As always, to get in touch with me after this year, in the week ahead, just simply write me an email. My email is director at jeln.org, jeln.org, director at jeln.org. Always happy to send you a printed version of either some of the title we'll cover tonight or a printed version of last week's year, excuse me, last year's year on the Parsha. Um, in time for Shabbos. I'm happy to send it to you. Just drop me an email and I'll send it to you, God willing, by email Thursday night or Friday morning. You'll sound good at the Shabbos table. I'd like to dedicate tonight's shir, Le'ila Nishmas, it should be a schus for the neshama of Matisyahu ben Shlomo Zalman Hakayan. Matisyahu ben Shlomo Zalman Hakayan was my grandfather. He passed away a year ago, a year and two days ago. Uh, and uh, this is uh, his yard site was uh, commemorated, this first one just a couple days ago. And uh, I miss him very much. And uh, hopefully, we're sending him packages of Divrei Torah and Gan Eden tonight. He should have nachas from us. Um, I'm often asked how you can listen to previous week's Shiurim. If you go to the J Root Radio website, they're, they're generally presented there very nicely. Also, if you go to TorahAnytime.com and visit my page, uh, over there, just look up my name, Bregman. I have almost 300 shiurim there, and I'd be very, very happy to uh, to, to share those with you. Not just the Parsha, but other in Yanim as well. So let's get started with Parsha's Truma. That's the Parsha of this week, uh, and I'm excited to do it with Hashem's help. Okay, here we go. So chapter 25, verse 2 in the book of Shemois. It says, Speak to the children of Israel, and let them take for me a portion. Why does it say, take for me a portion instead of give for me a portion. Since Hashem was asking for donations, we would have imagined that it would say and said the latter phrase, give for me. Give for me would have been a more appropriate form of speech. Why does it say take for me? So this is a very, very famous question with many, many terutzim. I'll share with you now. For starters, one response to the question. You know, this is the first time in the Chumash we find that the Jewish people are being asked to give something. And as such, they need to realize that when they give, they are the ones receiving the primary benefit. It is the giver who is doing the taking because it is the act of giving that transforms one's character. And you also find this idea expressed very succinctly in the words of the Medrash. The Medrash of Ayikir Rabbah in section Lamedalit under Ois Ches. The Medrash says over there, more than the wealthy person does for the poor, the poor does for the wealthy person. On a related note, I'd share with you the Gemara says in Tainus, Dav Chesamad Beis, continuing on at Dav Tesamad Al, Gemara says, gives a promise actually that a person who tithes his possessions, you give at least a tenth of your, your profits, you give miser, at least a tenth of your possessions, the Gemara promises you're going to become wealthy. Pretty good guarantee. And this is another reason why the donation in our parsha is called a taking by Chuli Truma to taking, because the benefactor will surely receive something in exchange for his largesse, for his generosity. And in fact, it's been noted that the word no ten, which means to give, is something we call in English a palindrome. The Balaturim in the book of Shemois, chapter 30, verse 12, mentions this. doesn't use the word palindrome. But he notices that the word no ten is a palindrome because a palindrome means that a word could be read the same way backwards and forwards. The word no ten is nun, tof, nun, forward and backwards. Nun, tof, nun. You can read it the same either direction. So the Balaturim and others explain that Hashem constructed this word in this fashion to convey the idea that when you give, it inevitably will flow right back towards you and you will be the receiver. So that's a little bit of the Torah for starters of take versus give. And why Hashem says, he's asking for a donation and he says, we should take for him a portion, even though you would say it should be give. Okay, let's move forward. Let's ask the question again, give a different answer. Why does the Torah use the word take versus give to describe the donations in our parsha? So Rav Zalman, Rav Zalman Sirotskin Zatzal, 
and Rav Moshe Feinstein's Atal and Adarish Moshe, they offer an approach to this question that focuses on human nature. They suggest the word take is used because it's hard for a person to give no matter how much money he or she has. So therefore, each and every time a person musters the strength to make a donation, it's as though the person had to work on himself to plunder from and to take his own possessions. Yes, it is true. The word take does carry the connotation of being compelled to give, but this is not necessarily inappropriate because if a Jew doesn't feel a natural urge to donate to Torah causes, then the person is supposed to attempt to change their nature and work on yourself. You sort of have to plunder from yourself. If you don't feel it, you're supposed to make yourself feel it anyway. Let's try one more answer. Why does it say the parsha, let them take from me a portion and not give? So another suggestion, another answer is that this is because we find it this way because that's really the truest depiction of how reality works. When we make a donation to a Torah cause, we're not the ones giving at all. You're not the one giving. In truth, we're merely taking from the possessions over which Hashem has temporarily granted us control, kind of like we're a trustee, something along those lines, and then we're just redistributing it to one of His causes. Hashem allows us to feel like we're doing something with our possessions, but that sentiment is not really accurate. It's not really true. We're really taking from his and passing it along to somebody else. We're not really giving something from our own. And if you understand this idea, this yesoid of redistribution of wealth when it comes to giving a donation and tzedakah, this is also pshat in the Pasik in the book of Devarim, chapter 16, verse 17. Over there in that verse, we find the Pasik describing the obligation to come to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, with the karbonis, the offerings, during the Shalash Regalim. And the Pasuk says, everyone according to what he can give. That's what you're supposed to do it. Everybody according to what he can give. Kematnas yadai. Every person according to what he can give. So the Shalah HaKadosh writes in the Tailless Adam, the Shalah points out that the literal translation of the phrase Kematnas Yadai, which usually is translated everyone according to what he can give, literally Kematnas Yadai means like the Matana, like the gift of his hand. Kematnas Yadai, like the gift of his hand. Says the Shalah, why does it say that? Kematnas Yadai, like the gift of his hand. He says, because in truth, when we give tzedakah or bring a carbon or giving any money over for a Torah cause, it's not really our money to begin with. It's not really coming from us. At most, it's kitmatnas yada. It's like a gift from our hand. It's not really a gift from ourselves uh, in its truest picture and depiction. So anyway, so that's some of the Geshmaka Torah, the beginning of the parsha. Why the donation begins with take for me a portion and not give. Okay, weiter. So then it says, let them take for me a portion. Me is li. By kichu li, truma. They should take for me a portion. What's this me? So Rashi, at the top of our parsha, explains the word li, which means for me. Li, he says, means li means lishmi, which means, what is lishmi? Lishmi means dedicated to or for the sake of my name. Lishmi is like, Lishmi, like to my name, dedicated to my name or for the sake of my name. So that's what Rashi says. They should take for me a portion. Li means Lishmi, dedicated to for the sake of my name, Hashem's name. Okay. But what does it mean that the Jewish people are commanded to take a portion and give towards the building of the Mishkan, dedicated for the sake of Hashem's name? What exactly does that mean even? So the Paninim Yakarim says a great vart on this idea. To answer this question, a person first has to be familiar with a Gemara in Saita. You can find this on Lamed Zayin Amad Beis, connecting on to Lamed Ches Amad Aleph. It's the last few words of 37b and continuing on the top of 37a. The Gemara there says in Saita, teaches us that in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple, the Kayin is to pronounce the name of Hashem exactly as it is written. Now, normally when we say the name of Hashem, when we're reading the Torah, 
or a, a bracha. We're not pronouncing it exactly as it's written. We have a different way of pronouncing it. Okay. So the, the Gemara says over there that the Kayan is supposed to pronounce it as it's written in the Beis HaMikdash, but in the provinces, the Kayan should express it, and that's what we do with what we call the alternative pronunciation, and that's the way we normally do it in the recital of blessings and prayers many times a day. So what do we see from this, says Peninim Yakarim? We see from here that it's the name of Hashem, it's only going to be pronounced in its fullness and in its best proper way when we have a temple. That's where we pronounce it as it is. And in the in the provinces and outside the base of Mikdash, there's a, a different way of pronouncing it. Okay. So says the Peninim Yakarim, this answers up our question. What does it mean, Lishmi, that the Jewish people are supposed to give the, the donations in the parsha dedicated to for the sake of Hashem's name? What does that even mean? So what is the function of the donations in our parsha, well, the answer is simple: to build a mishkan, to build a temple. And so, with that, you, now you can understand the words Arashi. The pasuk is saying, "Let them take for me a portion, and give their donations to the building of the mishkan." But it should be when they give, it should be li. It's meaning lishmi, means dedicated to, or for the sake of my name. Why? Because Shem is saying here that without the temple that he's asking them to give him build, his name will never, ever, ever be pronounced fully and properly. It's always going to be in a diminished form. So, truma, give for me a portion, give a donation, but it should be Lishmi for the sake of my name, dedicated for my name, because otherwise, based on this Gemara and Saita, says Pinim Yakarim, Kaddish Baruch Hu's name is never going to be pronounced as well as it could be in its fullness, in its ideal form. Okay, chapter 25, verse 2. The Pasuk says, And let them take for me a portion from every man. So, okay, let's try to dash in this. So there's a Rebbe, they called him the Varka Rebbe. He would use this Pasuk, this verse, to drive home the point that a person should try and learn from everyone he meets. We should condition ourselves to take the best of what every individual has to offer. Because everyone has strengths, and fine points, and milas. Everybody has fine points and milas. And that's actually the homiletic meaning of our Pusik. So when it says, and let them take for me, meaning, and in trying to serve me, when the Jew is trying to serve Hashem, and let them take for me, and trying to serve me, a portion from every man. What's a portion from every man? Meaning, find the best in each person, and relate to them on level. Because every man, so to speak, has a worthy portion that he brings to the table. And this is an incredibly important trait for us to develop and to internalize if you wish to deal with a broad range of people and in a successful fashion. We have to take the best from all the people we meet. And we take that and we relate to that and we build off that ksharim, connections and relationships. Okay, moving forward. Chapters, chapter 25, verses 2 and 3, it says, Take for me a portion. The word portion is truma. Then it says again, You shall take my portion. And then again it says, This is the portion. Truma, truma, truma. The Gemara in Megillah on 29b points out that the word truma is used three times in a span of two psukim over here. The word truma appears three times in a span of two, two verses. Why? So the Gemara says, this is actually to allude to three different donations. Number one, one was the half shekel, a half shekel from each person, from which the silver sockets of the beams of the Mishkan were made. Two, the second truma is going on a half shekel that was used to buy the korbanos, the offerings. And number three, the uh, third donation alluded to by the word truma was a general donation of any amount towards the building of the Mishkan edifice. Okay, so the word truma appears three times. It's going on three different donations. So far, so good. Now, the question is, why are the first referring to a donation of a fixed amount while the third truma is not? The first one was a half shekel from each person, for the silver sockets of the beams of the Mishkan. The second was a half shekel to buy korbanos. And the third one was like a general donation of any amount to build a Mishkan. Why are two solid and firm, the third not? 
So Rav Zalman Zatal, those Naim Latoira, gives a gorgeous answer. Very, very good. He says like this. From time immemorial, there have always been many individuals who stood ready to donate huge sums of money to dedicate a building. But there are far fewer people who are prepared to contribute any money to goes on to what goes on inside that building. I'll say it differently. There are many more people willing to donate a, sh- uh, a shul, a koilel, a yeshiva, a beis yaakov. Many more people willing to give the building than contribute towards the stuff that goes on inside the building. The kolel payroll, to fund tuition scholarships for Bachrim, or even give a, a well-deserved raise to a Torah educator inside the building. Now, Rav Zalman Saratskin points out, you know, Hashem, he's well aware of people's proclivities and inclinations. He made us, after all. So we adjusted the donations to the Mishkan accordingly. This is why we find that for the last of the three donations, which was a donation towards the building of the Mishkan structure, physical building itself, no mandatory amount was needed. Every person could give as he saw fit because people are inclined to contribute towards that kind of giving. However, for the carbonois, which is the purpose of the structure, what's going to go on inside of it, a specific amount had to be legislated to compensate for people's natural shortcomings. Okay. So, okay, so far, so good. It all makes sense so far, but one question still has to be answered to finish the vart. We explain why there was a mandatory half shekel for the carbonois. Aye, but why was a half shekel mandated and obligated for the sockets of the beams? So Rav Sarotskin answered that it's because people tend only to give when they know a project has a foundation and a support and that it's going to work. In other words, anybody who fundraises knows that the early money is often the most decisive. Therefore, Hashem ensured that everyone would see that the Mishkan's foundation had solid support. That's what the, the first half shekel was for, the sockets and the beams and the walls. Let everybody see that the Mishkan has solid support. It's going to work. It's going to happen. It's going to be. And with a solid foundation, the rest of the building's donations would surely pour forth. So that's why Rav Zalman Tzorotkin says there was a half shekel mandated for the sockets of the beams. Ah, you're going to say it's part of the building. The answer is in order because when people see you get off the ground, they're going to be ready to keep going and go weiter in their own generosity. Now, in chapter 25, verse 8, it says, They shall make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. Um, Okay, they shall make a sanctuary for me, and I'm going to dwell among them. Famous question asked on this is, why does the verse go from the singular, make for me a mikdash, to the plural, and I will dwell among them. Make for me, basuli mikdash, make for me a mikdash, singular. And I'm going to dwell amongst them, that's plural, singular to plural. Why the switch? What does it mean? So one explanation is that if we create personal sanctuaries in our lives and make ourselves individually kadosh and holy and sanctified, and we dedicate ourselves to Hashem, if we do that ourselves, we make ourselves holy, we make ourselves kadosh, we elevate ourselves by keeping the Torah and becoming the people Hashem wants, i.e. the singular, we make for ourselves a mikdash, we turn ourselves into one, then we will find that the plural part will happen too. Then we will find that he will dwell amongst them. Who's them? Them is the rest of the Jewish people. I'll say it again. We're supposed to make, uh, they shall make a sanctuary for me, meaning we make ourselves into the sanctuary so that I may dwell amongst them. Who's them? The rest of the Jewish people. So that's why it's singular to plural. In other words, by becoming as individuals, the type of Jews that Hashem wants us to be, we're going to become sanctified and give off spiritual light to the point that we will now have an abundant ability to influence others. If we make ourselves into a mikdash, which is the singular tense, we will find that he will dwell amongst those that come into contact with us, which is in the plural. Okay, now, it's very important to know, indeed, that the way to draw others close to Torah is first become what we're supposed to embody. But a person may wonder, and it's a fair question, how do you balance the need for continued self-development 
versus to need the need to reach out and impact others. Theoretically, a person can learn Tyra 24 hours a day. You know, in concept, in theory, there's no end to the self-development a person needs. And in theory, a person could literally find people that need Tyra and instruction and chizuk and strengthening and inspiration and, and kiruv all day long. So how do you balance a need from one to the other? So the Dubno Magid in the Sefer Oyel Yaakov, Parshish Tatsriya, it's brought, he wants to ask this very question to the Vilna Gain. And the Dubna Gain, uh, Dubna Magid, why did Dubna Gain? The Dubna Magid asked the Vilna Gain, yeah, how do you balance this? So the Gain, and this is found in the Sefer Ol Yaakov of the Dubna Magid, answered with a mushal. The Gain answered with a parable. He says, imagine that there's two kalim, two vessels next to one another. What you have to do, he said, if you want to fill one, fill both. One of the ways to do it is you, one has to fill and then overflow the first vessel. And that's the one that represents you to the point that the runoff is going to go and fill the second vessel. You fill the first one to the top and then over the top. And then from that overflow and runoff, you're going to fill the second one. And that's the idea that there's two kalim next to each other. You overflow one and it'll end up filling the second. So the guy in answer the Dubno Magid, we have to steig to the point, grow and tire and Yerushalayim to the point that the runoff from us and from our personal growth is going to illuminate and fill up and flip and inspire those Yidin who are around us. And that's the way the Gain understood the, how it would work, that you make, your, make for me a Mikdash, you make yourself into a Mikdash, and then he will dwell amongst them. Now the Gain wasn't going on this particular Pasuk, but we'd understand it's the same kind of dynamic that the Gain was speaking about, that I was explaining earlier, is the shift between the singular and the plural tense. Okay, so far so good. Let's go weiter. So they shall make a sanctuary for me. Vasuli uh, Mikdash. So let's speak about this. According to the Rambam, if you look in Hilchas Beis HaBechira, Perak Aleph, Halacha Aleph, the Rambam says that this verse, that they shall make a sanctuary for me, it's not only giving us a mitzvah to build a mishkan in the, the tabernacle, the portable temple in the Midbar, but also the future holy temples. So they shall make a sanctuary for me, says the Rambam, it's a mitzvah to build the future based on Mikdash's good. Now, if you look in the Gemara, Rashi and Taisavis on, on, in the Gemara and Sukkah, Dafmem Aleph Amar Aleph, Rashi and Taisavis say that the third base HaMikdash is going to be built by Hashem Himself and come down to us from Shemayim. So accordingly, it seems to come out based on this Rambam and the Rashi and Taisavis and Sukkah, Seems as though the Jewish people will never again have the opportunity to fulfill this mitzvah, Ba'asuli Mikdash, that I'm going to make a Beis Mikdash. But the Maril Diskin says that this is actually not the case. So let's speak out this Maril Diskin. There's a Posik in Eicha, chapter 2, verse 9. The Posik says in Eicha that the gates of the Beis Mikdash, the holy temple, were not destroyed and they were not burned. But instead, they sunk into the ground. Now, why? Why did that happen? So the Maral Diskin says it's so that the Jewish people in the Osid, in the future, would be able to place these gates on the third temple. Okay, fine. That's great. But why? What exactly does that accomplish? Great. The gates of the base of Mikdash weren't destroyed or burned. They sunk into the ground. Oh, so we're going to be able to put on the third temple. Good, but what is it? But in the ancient gates on the on the base of Mikdash, what, what does that have to do for us? So listen to the Maral Diskin. There's a Gemara Baba Basra, Davnun Gimalamad Beis, that says that putting the doors on a structure is a form of acquiring the structure, and it is as though the person built it himself. You put the doors on a structure, it's a form of being kind of the structure, you acquire the structure, and it's like the person built it himself. So therefore what? By putting the gates on the third temple, we'll be able to fulfill the mitzvah, they shall make for me a sanctuary one more time. Now understanding this explains pshat in the Musaf Shemona Esrei of the Shalash Regalim. Yeah? We find the phrase over there. 
The rebuild, uh, show us its rebuilding and gladden us in its perfection. The deeper meaning of this phrase accords well with Myrel Diskin. On one hand, we ask Hashem to show us its rebuilding because he's going to be the one to provide us the third temple. At the same time, we ask that he gladden us in its perfection. Bisikunai. And it's Tikkun, because we still have to get our share in that venture. And by attaching the doors to the third temple, we'll be able to perfect the structure. Anyway, that's one of my favorite Maral Diskins I ever learned. Love to say it over regularly, year to year. It's a beautiful, a beautiful vart connecting Vasuli Mikdash. There's a mitzvah to build a base on Mikdash, according to the Rambam. It goes on the temple, and we will be able to do it again the third time. And he uses the Maral Diskin uses this Posik and Eicha that says the gates sunk into the ground, and we're going to be able to attach them to the future base on Mikdash tied with the Gemara Baba Basra that by putting the doors on the structure, it's though we were it was Ke'ilu like we built it and acquired it ourselves enabling us to be Makayim the Mitzvah, fulfilling the Mitzvah of building a Beis HaMikdash one more time. Okay, let's move on a little bit to the actual Kalim. We're going to start learning some of the Torah of the Kalim of the Beis HaMikdash. And there's a lot of very, very interesting Torah involving the Kalim, the articles, the vessels in the Mishkan. So there are four main vessels in the Mishkan. What are they? Well, number one is the Aaron, the Ark. Number two is the Mizbeach, the altar. Number three is the Shulchan, the table. And number four is the Menorah. Those are the four main vessels in the Mishkan. Aaron, Mizbeach, Shulchan, and Menorah. Now, the Maral has a commentary on Pirkei Avois called Derechayim. And the Maral in Derechayim connects... Those four main vessels of the, of the Mishkan, the Aaron, Mizbeah, Shulchan, Manoira, he connects it to a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, chapter 4, Mishnah 17. That Mishnah speaks about three crowns. There it says, the Mishnah says there's three crowns, and then it actually lists a fourth. What are the three crowns? It says the crowns are Torah, Kehuna, which means the priesthood, Malchus, kingship, and the fourth is a Shem Toiv. A Shem Toiv means a good name. So the Maral connects these four vessels of the Mishkan, the Aaron, Mizbeah, Shulcham, and Oira, to these four items, these four crowns found in this Mishnah Pirkei Avos. Torah Kahuna, Torah Priesthood, Kingship, and a good name. They parallel these four items, these four crowns, parallel the four Kalim, in, and in that exact order. Okay, and that's kind of easy to understand. And I'll match it up for you. The Aaron... The, I'm going in the order of Aaron, Mizbeah, Shulcham, and Oira, matching it to the crowns. The Aaron, uh, that's okay, because the Aaron contained the original Sefer Torah and the Luchos. The Ark contained the Sefer Torah and the Luchos. So now I understand why it represents a crown of Torah. Okay. The Mizbeach, that was the second of the main vessels. And that re- the Mizbeach, the altar, represents the Kehuna. Uh, and that's fine, because it was the Kohanim who bring the Korbanis uh, over there on the Mizbeach and the altar. So that makes sense. The third item was the Shulchan, and the third crown with a table corresponds to the Malchus. Why? That's a little harder to understand. But the Shulchan represents Malchus kingship because a table can be a symbol of wealth and a person's status. And what would be higher and more wealthy and have more status than the king of the Jewish people? And the Menaira, the fourth of the vessels, corresponds to the Shem Tov, the having of a good name. And the Menorah parallels a good name because just as a Menorah gives off light, and illuminates ahead of a person, so too having a good name and a good reputation can uh, open up doors for you and sets a firm, you know, the feet of a person. Having a good name, it's in order to, it in order opens doors and gives off light and, and helps you move ahead and move forward. Okay, so far so good. Now, how did the Maral know that there's a connection between these vessels of the Mishkan, those basic four, and this Mishnah Pirkei Avos? Well, one of the obvious connections between the Kalim, those four items, and the Mishnah, is that the first three Kalim, the Aaron, the Mizbeach, and the Shulchan, they each have a crown. When I say a crown, it's sort of like a decorative crown around it. The Aaron, the Mizbeach, and Shulchan all have a crown. And the Mishnah is talking about crowns. The Mishnah says, oh, these are the crowns a person can have. And, uh, and, and the, those items have a crown. So that's one of the ways you see a connection from the Maharal. That's how we knew there's a connection. 
Now, on that note, it's worth pointing out that the first three crowns, that the first three crowns in the Mishnah are given to us by others. What were those crowns? Well, it's, you know, it's a Rebbe, a Torah teacher, or a father, or your ancestors. They give you the crown. A Rebbe can give you the crown of Torah. Your father, if he's a Kayan, can give you the crown, uh, crown of Kahuna priesthood. Your ancestor can give you the crown of royalty. You can be a Melech. But the fourth crown, the crown of a good name, no, no, no. That's something that nobody can give you. It's something you have to come and claim and create on your own. The Shem Tov is something you have to create on your own, and that parallels the menorah, right? Parallels the menorah. And if you look in the Chumash in, uh, in reference to the menorah, chapter 25, verse 31 of Shemais, you see it's the only item that had to be beaten out and hammered out in order to be made. It was like a lump of gold, that to be shaped and spread out, much like we do, in forming our own reputation. So it's interesting. The first three kalim that we mentioned, the first three items, they have a crown, and they correspond to those first three items uh, over there. But the fourth one, the having a good name, corresponds to the menorah, because those are things that cannot be given to you by somebody else. The, a good name can't be given to you by somebody else. Like a menorah, it has to be banged out and shaped out based on the efforts you do, you yourself. Now, a little bit more on this, because it's very, very interesting. Tyra Maral, and now we're going to get into a shame Shmuel in a second. We had said that based on the thesis of the Maral, the menorah corresponds to that Mishnah and Perikei of the Shem Tov, a good name. And we also noticed... And noted that the first three Kayla mentioned each has a crown, but the menorah doesn't. Why? What does that mean? Why doesn't the menorah have a crown around it, a decorative crown? Hashem could have instructed that. We could have had that. And what does that a crown have anything to do with having a good name? So the Shemesh Shmuel explains that the crown on the Kalim, it's called a Zer. Zer is the language in the Chumash for a crown. Now, Shemesh Shmuel points out that the word Zer is similar to the word, it's like the root of the word Nazir. Who's a Nazir? The Nazir is the person in the Torah who takes upon himself extra restrictions to upgrade his holiness. And the Nazir is somebody the Torah non-coincidentally speaks about wearing the crown of God on his head. It's interesting. The crown of the Kalim is called a Zer. And the Torah talks about the Nazir who has that root, that same word as wearing the crown of God on his head. Kind of interesting. It's also interesting, says Shemesh Shmuel, because the whole concept about the Nazir is about he's trying to become more holy, and he does so by transcending desires and arising above those natural, normal human limits. So now if you know that, you can answer the question why the Menorah and the Shem Tov uh, are the ones that don't have a crown. The Aaron. And the Mizbeach and the Shulchan, they all have crowns because the Aaron and its Torah knowledge and the Mizbeach and, and um, which represents the, the Kohen's leadership and the Shulchan representing the, the power of the Jewish kings, those are subject to abuse. Torah knowledge, priestly leadership, the power of a king is subject to abuse. And a person has to curtail his appetites and rise above them. That's why they have a crown and a border, a zer, like the Nazir, who uh, has to basically transcend his desires and limitations. Ah, but the Menorah doesn't have a crown because it corresponds to having a good name. And having a good name and a good reputation doesn't bring with it the same kind of dangers and likelihood of abuse as having a political power and the social power and the like. Interesting idea from the Shemesh Shmuel. Now, also one more piece on this. Interestingly, as he often does in his commentary, you'll find if you learn up to Shema Shmuel, he makes a lot of fascinating connections and, and sometimes unexpected ones that are fascinating and unexpected. And he lines up several things with this, with several things with this. It's a common theme if you learned up his commentary. Now, you'll find that the Shema Shmuel connects the three vessels and the three crowns that we said from before, the, those first three vessels, the base of Mikdash and those first three crowns of the Mishnah, he connects them to the three regalim, the Shalash regalim. <laughs> How so? He says Shavuos, the holiday of Matan Taira, corresponds to the crown of Taira, which corresponds to the Aaron, the Ark, which is the item of the Taira. Pesach, the holiday when we became free, corresponds to the crown of Malchus, the crown of kingship and kingdom, which corresponded, we said, to the Shulchan. And Sukkis, 
corresponds to the crown of the kahuna, which corresponded, we said the kahuna corresponds to the mizbeach where the karbanas are brought. Now you might ask me, what is a, what is a, being a kayan have anything to do with sukkis? So I'll tell you, the short version is sukkis is connected to arana kayan and his karbanas. And also because the sukkah, if you learn up many of the works, it's about time feeling close to Hashem and being brought close and, and the, the two walls and the half wall minimum, the two and a half wall minimum, it corresponds to, let's say, a person putting their arm around you and giving you a hug and Aaron is carving people to tire and everything else. So each of those holidays... Shemesh Shmuel says, needs a crown. The Shalash Regalim need a crown. Shavuos and Pesach and Sukkot, they need a crown because a person has to make sure they don't abuse the physicality or spirituality of the day. But Shabbos, he says, corresponds to the crown of the Shem Tov, the good name. And Shabbos corresponds to the menorah, which doesn't have a crown. Why? It doesn't have a border. Because Shabbos just shines bright, he says, it's not going to be abused. And if you think about it, you can add even one more piece that the Shabbos is like the Menorah. And like the, just like I said, the Menorah, the Tyra says it's kind of like a, it was like a lump of gold and had to be fashioned and hammered out into whatever it was supposed to be. Shabbos is like that. It's like a, like a lump of clay waiting to be hammered out or fashioned into whatever you want it to be. The Shabbos is like that. The Shabbos could be a transformative oasis of Ruchnius each week, or it could be a day of indulgence and sleeping and uh, Chalant and Kishka, and not much more than that. That's something very important to note. I know that piece was a little bit longer than we usually say in one, and it was a Ma'aral and a Shemesh Shmuel. If you have a chance... Uh, if you would like to chazer that piece over, which is really multiple pieces built in, there are a lot over there to digest and process, especially if you don't have notes on it. If you go to Torah anytime, you can catch it from there, or you can go to the JRoot uh, radio site, you can catch the Parshish Trumash here, and you can work on that piece more a lot there. You're listening to 97.5 FM, JRoot Radio. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. And let's go further in our parasha. Now, we spoke about the uh, kalim, the items, the vessels of the Beis HaMikdash all together as one. Let's speak about them a little bit now individually. Let's go back inside the Chumash. Chapter 25, verse 10. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So let's learn out from the fragments. It's well known that the Ark represents the Torah, and the Ark, the Aaron, represents the Torah because it contained the first tablets, the first Luchais, the second tablet, along with Moshe's Sefer Torah. So what are we to derive from the fact that the dimensions of the Ark, which represents Torah, are presented in fractions? That's what I just said. It's two and a half cubits its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Why is it divided into fractions? So the Kliyakar, and also Rav Nosen Adler, who was the Chassam Seifer's Rebbe, they comment that by the fractions, this teaches us that we always have to feel that there's more Torah to learn and more Torah to know. Our learning is always incomplete. If you learn Gemara Barachais, you got to learn Gemara Bechairais. If you learn Baba Kama, you have to learn Baba, ba- Baba Matziah, Baba Basra. And if you learned all of the Bavli, all the Talmud Bavli, good. You're still incomplete. Now you got to learn up the Yerushalmi. Whatever we've learned, it's Nishkanuk. It's never enough. So Kliyakar, Rav Nosen Adler, learn it all. That's why the Aaron is expressed in fractions to say, whatever you know, it's good, you should feel proud, but it's never enough. Okay, Shane, now, the Balaturim has a different explanation from the fractions. He derives from the fractions of the Ark that a person must learn to break his ego and become humble. The fractions represent a breaking of the ego and humility. This is an essential, a non-negotiable prerequisite to steiging in Tyra and for any person who wants to acquire Tyra. It's no coincidence that the greatest Torah scholar of all time, Moshe Rabbeinu, was also the most humble person of all time. Humility and acquisition of Tyra go hand in hand. So that's how the Baal Aturim learns up the fractions. Now the Eulalai Sephraim, he wants to say that the fractions of the dimensions of the Ark allude to the Rebbe-Talmud relationship, the Rebbe, the, the Rabbi-Disciple relationship. Why? 
the fractions allude to the idea that the Rebbe and Talmud need each other, each one needs the other to fulfill his potential. While the student's need for his teacher is obvious, the need of the Rebbe for his Talmud, the Rav for his student, that also should not be overlooked. Now, in terms of this pshat of the Eilelesifrayim, that the Rebbe needs the Talmud in equal measure, just as the other one needs the other, I heard it said that that Yesoi, that the Rebbe needs a student, is the meaning of a perplexing Gemara in Makos. I don't think I ever said over this Gemara Berabim before, this pshat that I'm about to say. Hope you enjoy it. It's a Geshmak of art. Listen well. Gemara says in Makos, Aleph, 10a, Gemara says, I learn much, Torah from my teachers and from my colleagues even more. But from my students, I learn more than from all of them. Question is, how could that be? We would imagine we learn the most from our teachers because their wisdom will be superior to our own. And of course, you can learn Torah from your peers as well, but that will be a smaller amount because our, our, our peers are closer to approximating our own level. And in terms of our students, our Talmidim, eh, I'd imagine we'd learn the least of all from them because what do they really have to offer us? Our fund of knowledge dwarfs and overshadows and towers over their own. So what does it mean? Because the Gemara Maka says it backwards, seemingly. I learned the most. I learned from my teachers and even more from my peers and, and colleagues and even the most from my students. It seems to be punt fakert. It seems that it should have been written adarabo. So what's pshat? So I heard it explained like this. The extent to which a student looks to a Rebbe as a source of Torah knowledge, to that degree, Hashem will fill that Rebbe with wisdom, with Chachma to offer the students. This is the dynamic we find described in a Gemara Psachim on Kuf Yud Beis of 112a. There's a rabbinic maxim over there that says, more than the calf wishes to suckle, the cow, uh, the, wish it, excuse me, more than the cow wishes to suck, meaning more than the cow wants to take milk from the mommy, the cow wishes to suckle. That the, more than the, yeah, that's what I'm saying, more than the calf wishes to suckle, more than the baby wants to get the milk, the mommy wants to give the milk to the baby. I'm getting a little crossed up in translating a Gemara to English, but that's what it is. More than the calf wishes to, to get the milk, the mommy cow wants to give the milk over. In much the same manner as the mother's cow milk will be replenished, some of the Mepharshim say. We know that. The mommy cow's milk will be replenished the more the child takes. So too, Hashem will fill the teacher of Torah with more and more wisdom, commensurate with what his students attempt to take from him. And with that Gemara in mind, now you understand why the wording of the Gemara and Makkas makes perfect sense. A person's teachers, they don't look to you as a fount of wisdom and knowledge, and therefore, Shem doesn't fill them with much taira on their account. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, a person's students look to you for the greatest amount of taira. And on their account, a Kaddish Baruch Hu fills the Rebbe with wisdom. And it is in that respect that we can rightfully say that from my students, I have learned more than from all of them. Anyway, I'm only explaining that by the derech of the Eilus Ephraim to understand why is it that the, uh, the fractions are divvied up and found over there as such in the context of the, the context of the, of the, of the Arin. Okay, so far so good. Okay, let's go a little bit further. So, okay, let's see. Now it says, they shall make an ark. Chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark. Why they? Why they shall make the aron? They shall make the ark. For the other kalim, if you look at the other vessels, it says, you shall make. Why they over here? So one classic answer comes from the Ramban. The Ramban. And the Ramban says that every yid had a hand, every Jew had a hand in making the Aaron, so they would each be zoich, they would each be able to merit to the Taira it represents. Why is that necessary? Because connection to Taira is on a level of its own amongst the mitzvahs. Taira is forever, and it applies even in eras when there's no Mishkan and no Korbanis and no Shulchan and everything else. So everybody needed to have a connection to it. That's why the Ark, he says, is they shall make... 
and it's not you shall make. They, every Jew had to have a hand because Tyrus is on an another level. It's another level amongst the mitzvahs. Now I'd like to suggest another reason why the mitzvah to build the ark is given in the plural, they, and why it's said in that fashion, another teretz. There's a famous Rambam in Hilchas Tamatayra Paragimel Halacha Aleph. The Rambam writes that he says that the, of the crowns of Torah and Malchus and Kahuna, there's all these crowns: the crown of Torah, the crown of uh, of kingship, the crown of priesthood. He says that the crown of Malchus and Kahuna, of being a king or being a coin, that's already taken. If you're not from Shevet Yehuda, you have no chance of being a Melech. If you're not already a Kayan, your father's not a Kayan, you're never going to be a Kayan. Those are taken. Over the Tesser Torah, the crown of Torah, the Rambam says is the greatest of them all. Because it lies prepared for any year to want to take it. You have to sit and learn, you have to shtai, you have to push, you have to work on it. But you can, the crown of Tyra is available to you, and the Rambam says in Hilchstam Tyra, it's the greatest because any yid can have it if he wants it. Now, we said earlier that the Kesser of Tyra, the crown of Tyra, represents the Aaron, represents the Ark. So therefore, I want to suggest like this. That an additional reason why every Jew had to be busy with making the Aaron, that's why it says they shall make it, as opposed to when the other Kalim were made, it's because the Aaron represents the crown. Uh, the Aaron represents the crown that is attainable to any person who's willing to put in the work. Uh, the Aaron represents the Kesser Tyra, the Tyra, and the Kesser Tyra, the crown of Tyra. It's something that's attainable to any person who's willing to put in the work. It's the highest of all. Whereas the other Caleb, the Sholchan, the Mizbeach, they represent crowns that were already taken and not accessible to all. Anyways, I was thinking that's another reason why that the Aaron is in the plural. Because it represents the crown that every Yid is able to get, unlike the others, like Shulchan and Mizbeach. I was very happy when I thought of this Mahalach. And later, I actually ended up seeing, years later, that the Al-Sheikh essentially says the same thing. That it says, they, over here, that they shall make the Ark, because Tyra can be acquired by any Jew who's willing to put in the work. The Al-Sheikh says it in that fashion. I was connecting it to the Rambam. But it's basically the same Vart. Basically the same Yesaid. Okay. Now, uh, it's known that the Tyra, uh, that the Aaron represents Tyra. But it's also known, if you know Torah symbolism, that the Menorah also represents Tyra. So there's, there's, there's two, there's two Kalim. In the, in the Beis HaMikdash that represent Torah. The Aaron, the Ark, represents Torah, but the Menorah also represents Torah. Okay. So what's the difference between them? And why do we need two symbols of Torah amongst the Kalim? So the Chsam Soifer and Tyrus Moshe says something interesting. He seems to say that the Aaron, the Ark, represents more of a Jew's basic observance as it contained the Luchos and the tablets and the written Torah. That's more like a Jew's basic Shemir HaMitzvah's basic observance. The Menorah and the light again gives off uh, and the light it sheds hints to an even more in-depth and deeper and further level of Torah learning and Torah study which goes beyond a Jew's basic observance. Okay. Ad Karchsam. Sorry for Tyrus Maishet. Now, that's interesting in and of itself, but it's also important because it's going to resolve for us something else. If you look in the Torah, you see that we're told to build the ark. These are the, this is the order. We're told to build the ark, and then we're told to build the shulchan, the table, for the lechem upon him, and then we're going to be told to make the menorah. Is there a significance to the order? First you build the Ark, and then you build the Shulchan, and then you build the Menorah. Is there a significance to the order? So Chassam Seifer says, yes. The Aaron comes before the Shulchan, because the basic observance of Torah does not depend on having a lot of money, or knowing precisely where your support's going to come from. The Shulchan, the, the table that had the Lechem upon him, the showbreads, represents Parnassah, having a livelihood. So, the, so he says that the Aaron comes before the Shulchan, because the basic observance of the Torah, the basic observance, keeping the basic mitzvahs, it's not totally in having a shulchan, the parnasa in place. That every Jew can keep the basic things. Ah, but the shulchan, which represents parnasa, does come before the menorah. Because having a stable base of income is often necessary to delve into the highest levels of learning Torah and the like, which is what the menorah represents. And that's a very important lesson for those people who support Kailalim 
And Rabbanim and Tamir Chamim. You want there to be basic observance of Torah? Okay, no, no. For that, every Jew is able to have access to the Torah represented by the, by the basic Aaron. Oh, but you want the Torah with the Menairah. For that, you still have to have the Shulchan in place before you get to the Menairah. A Moira Dikavart from the Chsam Seifer. Okay, we have to be Makatra a little bit. I'm going to have to cut the Shira a few minutes earlier tonight, unfortunately. But uh, let's try one more shtickle Torah and we'll be Messiah for tonight. Chapter 25, verse 18 says, You shall make two keruvim of gold. Okay, so the halacha is that of all the vessels in the Mishkan and in the temple, they had to be made of gold. But if there would ever be a shortage of gold, silver could be used. All the kalim should be made of gold. But in a shortage, silver could be used. Okay, now there's one exception and that is to the Keruvim. If you look in the Mechilta, the Medrash, and Parshish Mois, Parshish Yisra, under Ois Yud, you see, the exception to that is the Keruvim. The Keruvim are those angelic uh, figures with the faces of the children resting on top of the Ark. That had to be made out of gold. They absolutely had to be made out of gold, no matter what, no exception. And silver could not be used even in a pinch. The question is, why? Sir so of Meir Shapiro of Lublin Zatzal explains that the answer to that question is connected to the idea that the Kruvim had the faces of children. When necessary, a Yid is allowed to cut corners and save money on a lot of things, but not on the education of our children or their schools or their teachers. Those things always come first, and you just can't cut corners when it comes to them. They require the use of gold, so to speak, meaning the best, no matter what. Something else we can add over here. And then we have to sacrifice and make sure our kids have the best Torah education we can, no matter what it costs. Hopefully it won't cost an arm and a leg or two legs, but you know. But we have to insist on the gold no matter what. Uh, I'll give you another source for it. There's a widespread minig, a big custom, that the Torah study of children begins with the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, which has the Karbanis, and it's even found in the Medrash of Vayikra Rabbah, uh, under Isaiah Parsha Gimel. It says it over there. The Abne Ozel says, why? Why do we begin with that? It's to teach that if you want to be successful in raising your kids to Torah, you want them to be the best and the biggest and the most, you have to be prepared to make sacrifices. You're a parent. Listen, there has to be gold here, no silver when it comes to educating the kids. And many commentaries, including the Shachal Torah, emphasize that they groove him with the faces of the kids come to teach us a lesson about the critical importance of Torah education and sacrifice when necessary, and especially for the young. I hope you very, very much enjoyed tonight's cheer. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You're listening to JRU Radio, 97.5 FM, our weekly cheer in the Parsha. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, just send me an email, director at jeln.org. I'd also be happy, if you request it, to send you a printed version of either some of the Tyra we covered tonight, or maybe some of the Tyra printed from last year's shear, or maybe a hybrid or something of the in-between in your inbox by email uh, in time for Shabbos Chaydesh. I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful Shabbos and a gorgeous Chaydesh. Thank you so much for learning Tyra with me tonight, and you should all be gebenched. Kaltav.